For the last 1,500 years, the church has uh, gathered and collected these sins together in a list to, uh, to help us know and to fight those, those roots that, uh, that we find within ourselves. And we've, uh, this has been, I don't know, it's been a painful process, at least for me. And I'm coming this morning, we are talking about sloth. Uh, so it is, I, even writing these things, I want you to know, even before I start, I just need you to know, as I write these things, I am thoroughly convicted of my sloth. Um, and, and every single one of these, I, I am convicted at, at how, uh, how much these things find their ways into the corners and highways and byways of our souls and our lives, and we don't, uh, we don't see it, which is why it is good to sometimes step back and take a look at it afresh to let the Word speak to us and wash over us, and then hopefully uh, spend some time soaking in the gospel and in the mercy of God that, uh, that we press ahead into newness of life. This morning we are in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34. Hear then the word of God. I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man who lacks sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. And then I saw, and I considered it. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning into your presence. We have gathered this morning under your word. We come to sit at your feet and to learn of you. We come to sit at your feet and to learn of us. And then to learn of you and your mercy. Father, would you come and speak to our hearts and into our lives with power. uh, That we may not just gather information. But we might experience the power of your transformation. That work you do by your spirit. In us. We ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a proverbial parable on sloth. This is a parable, really, in in the middle of our Proverbs. A proverbial parable that I remember reading when I was in my 20s. I remember reading this years and years ago. And in my own quiet time, I remember reading it. and, And as I was reading it, seeing literally a picture of my life. And my soul, and having the conviction uh, come upon me about uh, seeing my soul as this garden and, and, and the work that is required, that something is required for the tending of this garden, the care. You know, there's work to be done if we want it to be healthy. And I remember, you know, all of the, the pieces of it in my head, just like a garden, you need, somebody needs, if it's like this, first needs to be bushwhacked. Right? Somebody needs to just cut everything off and then the thing needs to be tilled and the soil to be torn up and then someone needs to go through and pick out the rocks and the clumps and the roots and stuff so that you can get down to dirt and then someone needs to furrow it and to plant it and to water it and then to tend it because as it starts to grow, those thorns and nettles and the stuff that comes up, you know, Jesus tells another parable about four soils and one of them, stuff starts to grow, but it says it's choked out by the thorns come up and choke the life out of it. 
says the cares and pleasures of this world. And so it has to be tended, it has to be weeded and, and kept. And I, I had a garden right off my deck. My son started it, and I had no desire to do a garden, but he did. And so he started it off my deck. I got help getting some dirt in it, and we planted the thing. And I just kept looking over the side. You know, I planted it, and after that, it was a mess. It was just like this. There were no walls, and there were thorns, and it just, you know, you could hardly tell any. I want you to imagine your life as a garden. You know, kind of like this, maybe with a wall around it. You know, it's intended to have neat rows of of fruitful produce, things coming up and and growing. You know, imagine your your life as a garden, your life in general, maybe your, your soul, your spiritual life in particular is a garden like this. The narrator is walking by, he says, the narrator, the teacher of Proverbs. He says, I was walking, I passed by my neighbor's field. And he glimpses the character of the owner. Because he immediately says, I passed by the field of a sluggard. Right, so as he passes the neighbor's garden, he glimpses the character of the owner. And he knows the character of the owner by the condition of the garden. In a sense, by their fruits you will know them. You know, there's a little bit of that as he, as he looks and he sees by the condition of the garden, the life and holdings of, he says, of a sluggard. What a great word. When's the last time you used sluggard in a sentence? You know, or sloth, right? It's another great word. I love that word. And it carries power. It's, a little, it's more than laziness, you know, sloth. I mean, it just has this, you know, we don't use them in a sentence very often, but they are, they're powerful words. They feel heavy on the tongue as you say them, sluggard. It describes this sluggard. He says it's a man in parallel here. I pass by the field of a sluggard. He says by the vineyard of a man. And so we know what kind of a garden it is. It's, it's just cultivated by the vineyard of a man who lacks sense. He's without sense. How can you know that this person lacks sense? And the answer is because undoubtedly, this field, this garden, this vineyard of this guy is the most important thing, the most valuable thing that he owns. You know that the ancient Middle East was agrarian, that the whole thing is agrarian, that a great deal of wealth is found and understood and considered in in property, in what you owned. And a great deal of your livelihood then, what you actually ate or whatever you could sell and prosper from was what you could produce. You know, they didn't, there wasn't a factory they were going to. They didn't work, there was no TVA. You know, there were no government projects. There were no, these guys, this was the most valuable, the most important thing that this man owned, the source of his livelihood and food. And we know that it's his livelihood and food because at the end it says poverty comes on him. Like, a, like an armed man, like a bandit or a robber. You know, poverty comes on him. So this is the most valuable thing, the most important thing that he owns. And he knows what he needs to do. I'm not even a farmer. and I already described, I know what needs to be done. right? I'm, I'm not even a farmer and I know this guy knows what needs to be done. He knows what's required of him. He knows what the right thing to do is. He knows what he needs to do for that field to prosper. And somehow, somehow, it doesn't get done. He doesn't do it. And it doesn't make sense. That's why the man lacks sense. It doesn't make sense. Why would anyone? This is the question to linger in your mind. It's a question that lingers in, in my mind. Why would anyone neglect the most important things in life? 
Why would anybody do that? Why would we neglect the most important things in life? And for what? What would we do instead of those important things? See, the person who lacks sense can't seem to do the important things. He may know what they are. He may know what needs to be done. He may know what the calling is and the work that needs to be done. But he doesn't seem to be able to do them, to do the right things, which is very often the hard things. Kidner, as he writes about this, uh, Derek Kidner is a commentator, and he writes and he says that the sluggard is actually a character that runs through the book of Proverbs. And there are probably a dozen Proverbs on the sluggard and describes them in various ways. And so in summing up, he says this, that uh, the sluggard in Proverbs is a figure of tragic comedy with his sheer animal laziness. In parentheses, he says he is, this is in your bulletin, by the way, he is more anchored to his bed He is more than anchored to his bed. He is actually hinged to it. Talks about a sluggard on his bed is like a door on its hinges. Um, He's actually hinged to his bed. His preposterous excuses at one time, he says, I can't go out there and do my work. There's a lion out there. So there's always an excuse, some reason why he can't go do his, his work. And then in his final helplessness, and you read throughout the, the consequences of his life, of his choices, of his choices not to do the important things to do other things. And so the parable tells us the result is a life of poverty. And he gives us a glimpse in verse 31 of what this field then looks like. It's left to its own. Verse 31, it says, Behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground is covered with nettles. Its stone wall is broken down. Instead of order, there's chaos. Instead of healthy boundaries, right, there are no healthy boundaries, no walls. So critters get in, the world gets in, everything gets in. Instead of strength, we see crumbling. Instead of fruit, we see weeds and thorns. We see neglect. We see a parable, a proverbial parable of sloth. And when we look at it, we see... And we know the important things that need to be done. Just by describing what's wrong, we know exactly what needs to be done. But this man chooses to live in poverty because he chooses the wrong things. And we'll come back to that and we'll talk about that. But the scene is literally fruitless, right? And and the author, the the passerby, the teacher, wants us to understand and see this entirely fruitless situation. He said, but there's one fruit to be offered. There's one fruit from this picture, from this garden to be offered. And he says, basically, it's, it's a warning. Right? The one fruit that this picture has to offer is a warning, which is what the author takes from it. In verse 32, he says, And I saw it, and I considered. I looked, and I received instruction. He got fruit from it, right? There was a fruit to be gathered, but it was instruction in the form of a warning. He looked and he learned the person who has sense is able to see the consequences of poor choices, which is really what it comes down to. The passerby is able to look and to see the choices that are made here and the consequences of those choices. And if we could do that in life, that is what the Bible calls wisdom, is to see the consequences of choices, not just short-term, but long-term. It's a lot of what I try to inculcate there's a word for you. What I try to build into my children is, is 
this longer view. You know, you do what you have to do now so you can do what you want to do later. You do what, what is necessary now. You do the hard things and try to teach them and that the fruit may be five years or ten years or even twenty years down the road, but if you don't lay this foundation, do the hard things, do the necessary things, do the important things. The person who has sense is able to see the consequences of choices, poor choices, and they're able to choose wisely. <laughs> when I say that we're able to choose wisely, the person of sense is able to choose wisely. Give me, I don't know if this works for you or not. I always try these things. So Indiana Jones, one of his movies, right? he's seeking the Holy Grail. He's always seeking some great relic, uh, usually Christian relic. And he's seeking the Holy Grail, and he ends up in a cave at the end of the movie, and he's always in competition with somebody else who's also seeking the Holy Grail. And in this Indiana Jones, in this picture, Indiana Jones is a man who has sense. And one of the reasons he is, is that he ends up in a cave with a table full of chalices, of goblets, of potential Holy Grails, right? And Indiana Jones in the scene is the man who has some sense. Why? Because he knows the scripture. And there's a sense in which, I'm not saying Indiana Jones is a Christian, but there's a sense in which he knew Jesus, Because he was thinking biblically as he looks at the table of chalices and he's trying to figure out which one to drink from. He thinks biblically what kind of man Jesus is and what kind of, how would Jesus choose when he had these these goblets. The guy who was with him, who I think he's a Nazi, doesn't have any sense and he's not thinking biblically. The man who has sense thinks biblically and lives and chooses like Jesus would choose according to a biblical worldview and understanding. And so the guy doesn't have sense, and he chooses, as he's looking at this go- the goblets, and there are many of them, he takes the, the gold one, the most gold and jewel-encrusted goblet on the table and says, this must be the goblet of the king, you know, and he drinks out of it. And there's this ancient knight standing there watching them as they, they do this. He's the guardian of the grail. And he just shakes his head and says... He chose poorly. I just thought it was this one of my favorite lines. Every now and then in life, I'll look at you and I'll say, you chose poorly. Because it's the classic understatement, right? Given the consequences, I'm not going to tell you the consequences, but the consequences were dire. He was not thinking biblically. He did not know Jesus. He did not know what kind of man Jesus was. And he chose poorly. You know, and Indiana Jones knows Jesus was a man of humility, right? He was a man who was gentle and humble of heart, and he, he was a man, and so he chooses the humble goblet off the table, the, the goblet of the king, who was a servant, choosing wisely. He wasn't thinking biblically. And the consequences were devastating. And that's true for our lives when we don't think biblically. The consequences are that we can choose poorly. And there are, there are difficult consequences in our lives. And so verses 33 and 34, he describes them. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. Right? And so the lesson is this. A little, a little, a little adds up to a whole lot of nothing. Right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, he says, adds up to a whole lot of nothing. Poverty. See, here's the thing. This is the lesson he gets. If you don't hear anything else, hear this then. When we don't choose to do the important things, we are robbed of a fruitful and abundant life. 
That's what the picture is all about. When we don't choose to do the important things, the biblical things, the godly things, the right things, which are often the hard things, we are robbed of a fruitful and abundant life that Christ and God intends for us to have. It's a powerful picture. And the narrator, I want us to be like the narrator this morning and let's stand back as he walks by at a distance, objectively looking. It says he sees and he considers. He looks... And he learns something. Christian moral theology, sloth is a spiritual problem. Right? That the picture, what's going on here, we think it's just a matter of, uh, you know, animal vigor of doing more stuff. And he says, the problem here is, is not just that. The problem is a heart problem. The problem is a, is a spiritual problem. As most of our problems truly are down at the root. There's a spiritual problem. The sin is a sin of doing nothing. It's a sin of doing the wrong things. You know, it is interesting to me we need, that we need to understand this whole picture in the New Testament about the Christian life and what the Christian life is like. And I, I read from some of it last, I think last time or the week before, in Galatians chapter 5, which is one of those chapters that is one of the richest chapters on, on sanctification and the spiritual life the, that's in the Scripture. And there's this, this powerful picture there. And we need to understand that the sin of sloth is not necessarily to do nothing. I'm finding I jumped a point here, so I'm <laughs> I'm going to catch it back up. We need to understand it's not necessarily doing nothing. It's neglecting to do the important things. Right? It's not just uh, not doing anything and sitting on the couch, but it's actually doing the wrong things. Because very few of us do nothing. It's almost impossible to do nothing. I guess there are people that sleep all the time, but there are probably chemical issues involved. But most of us can't even make ourselves do nothing. We do something. We're just doing the wrong things. We're just not doing the right things. We're just not doing the important things. So in James chapter 4, verse 17, this didn't make it into your outline, but it would be under number 2 had it been there. And James says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And I believe that is sloth. And that, as I read it, I find convicting in my life uh, to, to a degree that would surprise you. Whoever knows the right thing to do. And this is our problem, my friends. We know the right thing to do. The guy who owned that field knew the right thing to do. He knew what needed to be done. I'm sure it niggled at the side of his mind. Every time he went out his front door, he got a glimpse of his vineyard. We know the right thing to do. But he says we, the one who fails to do it, for him it is not just laziness in a sense it's it's sin this is the sluggard's problem chip ingram said laziness is not just not doing nothing but he says it's not doing what you should be doing at the time you think about that for a minute it's not doing what you should be doing at the time at any given moment on any given day not doing what we should be doing at the time so what are the important things What are the important things that we should be doing that we sometimes find ourselves not doing? And the bottom line is simply this. It's the things which God said that we should be doing. And so really, as we think about this whole thing, it's about us and God. And a lot of times in life, we we manage to 
to not think rightly about him by not rightly relating everything to our relationship with God. Because this is all about living for Christ or not living for Christ. This is all about obedience to God or not being obedient to God. This is all about being biblical or not being biblical. It's all about knowing him, loving him, and following him, and not knowing him. And and it's not some side category where I have my little spiritual slice and my religious slice over here, and so I have some other... This is central to our relationship with God. It's it's not doing those things which God said we should be doing. The business we should be about. And so sloth really is all about the sins of omission. You know, when we do the prayers of confession, um, there, there's always two kinds. In fact, one of the formal ones that you do always talks about those things which we have done, our sins of commission. But also, Father, forgive us for those things we have left undone. Right? The sins of of omission, those things that we ought to have done, but we have not. And our life is, is full of those, and it's, and it's figuring out those things that we ought to do, right? Ought to do biblically as followers of Christ. And, and so as I look at my marriage, or I look at my parenting, or I look at my work, or I look at my leisure, or I look at my money, or I look at whatever it is I look at, and there's those things to think biblically so I can choose wisely, right? What is it that I ought to have done? And then seek to do that, right? Is to live wisely, to know the will of God, and to do it. Rodney Chrisman, I think this is in your bulletin under number two, he says, Americans are addicted to entertainment and leisure. Entertainment and leisure are not necessarily evil. There's a time to rest. We should rest. We should take some leisure. He says, however, the amount of time that most Americans dedicate to entertainment and leisure rises to the level of idolatry rises to the level of sloth. See, the irony is that our lives can be full and busy and be slothful at the same time because we're doing the wrong things. It's a sin to choose entertainment or leisure or anything else in the neglect of a healthy, thriving marriage. It's a sin to choose entertainment and, and leisure or anything else in neglect of, you know, discipling and raising and teaching and nurturing our children. It's, it is a sin to choose entertainment and leisure or anything else in the neglect of a healthy spiritual life. So we can actually, well, I won't say that. The sin of spiritual sloth is doing anything to the neglect of what God is calling you to do. So think about that, right? Sloth then is the sin of doing anything other than what God is calling us to do, or rather to the neglect of what God is calling us to do. Rebecca DeYoung, this is there in your bulletin too, she says, if our work is a divinely appointed vocation, and there the work is the work of God, and you know it is, he has, he's created us to do good works in Jesus, so this isn't your occupation, it's, it's your vocation, your calling. You know, if our work before God is a divinely appointed vocation and calling, as Reformed theology likes to emphasize, and sitting around isn't just useless, it's thumbing our noses at God's call. It's to neglect, to do the important things. So imagine this garden as your marriage. Is it healthy? Is it fruitful? Are you doing the work that's necessary, the important things that are necessary for it to thrive? And the question becomes, 
Why not? Imagine the garden as your relationship with your children. Is it healthy? Is it fruitful? Are you doing those things to disciple and to build relationship and to nurture our children and to invest the the time that God is calling us so that it's healthy and thriving? And if, if not, why not? Imagine the garden as your spiritual life, your soul. Does it need to be bushwhacked? Does it need to be tilled? You know, and, the, and, and sort it through. Do we need some furrowing and some planting? Does it need watering? Does it need weeding? If you're a young person this morning, ask yourself, what should you be doing? What's your calling? Every one of us has a calling before God. And if you're a young person right now, your calling is to be a student. Your calling is to school, as an education, as a foundation for life. Your calling is to be obedient to your parents. Your calling is to grow as a follower of Jesus. Your calling is to be pure. Your calling, you know, what is it? And this is the thing. What, in order to not choose poorly, all of us need to step back and to consider what should we be doing? If God were standing in front of me and his word were open and his spirit were speaking, what is the Lord calling me to do? To redeem the time. To not choose poorly. Sloth is a spiritual issue, and it's just this, not building our lives around God's priorities. That's what sloth is. It's a spiritual issue of not building our lives around God's priorities. What God says is important. And so Charles Spurgeon has said, there is no disease in the world worse than laziness. It's in your bulletin under the second point. There's no disease in the world worse than laziness, than giving ourselves to the wrong things. Why? Not only because it neglects our duty before God, but because in the end it leaves our lives impoverished and it robs us of abundance. It is God's good, uh, goodwill. It is for the good of his people that he calls us to obedience. It not only ignores our duty before God, but it leaves us impoverished. Books left unread, work left undone, duties left unfulfilled, love left unshared, potential left undeveloped and unrealized, marriages robbed of health and vitality, children robbed of rich relationship and discipleship, spiritual lives robbed of strength and abundance. Who will deliver us from our laziness, from our aversion from doing the important things? which is really what it comes down to. Don't you know? And this is where I, want, where I meant to go to Galatians 5 that I, I preempted a minute ago, which is that passage about Christian sanctification and the life that before him. Don't we know that there is a deep aversion in your soul, a deep aversion to doing important things? There's something inside of you that resists doing anything good, that resists doing anything spiritual. There's a part of you that resists. You ever go to read the scripture and you find there's something within you that resists? I would do almost anything else but read the Bible. I'm going to go turn on the TV. I'm going to go work in the yard. or I'm going to go do this or I'm going to go do that or I'll sleep another hour. But there is that within you which resists doing anything spiritual and anything good. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Right? The desires of the flesh resist the life of the Spirit. 
It's a spiritual problem. There is that which, in a, which, 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 which is within us, which the Bible calls the flesh, which is that fallen part of us, that part of us that, that, that rebels against God and resists anything godly. And so there's a warfare in our souls, and that's what Galatians describes, right? Not only are the desires of the flesh resisting the spirit, but the desires of the spirit are resisting the flesh, and they're opposed to each other, and this keeps you from doing those things that you want to do. I will put in there those things that you should do. You know, we want to do them if we are biblically minded and if we are, you know, wanting to please and to serve and to honor God. Those are the things that we should want to do. But there is a war with, where he says going on inside. And for me, this helps me when I go to read the scripture and I, and I feel that aversion, I feel that resistance when I go to sit and pray and I know that I, I feel that resistance when, I, when I, somebody asks me to do something that would honor God and which would serve his people or would do something, there's that within me that says, I want to do nothing, you know, or I want to just go home and watch TV or I just want to, you know, whatever it is, there's that aversion within us, it helps me to know this is spiritual warfare. There's something in me that resists the things of God. There's something in me that doesn't want to do His will. There's something in me that knows the right thing to do and doesn't want to do it. And the Bible says there is this, and it says the two are at war with each other. In my very soul, the knowledge of that warfare helps me. The Word of God helps me. Because the good news is this, God has given us his Holy Spirit. It says, the Bible says he has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Right? He has given us what we need. He has given us his Spirit. Not only does the flesh resist the Spirit, but the Spirit of God resists the flesh. And which one do you think is stronger? Which one is declared the winner? Which one is the sovereign Lord? Which one is king? See, the problem is we end up surrendering ourselves to the wrong master. Serving the wrong king. And so doing the wrong things. Choosing poorly. Instead of choosing wisely. He has given us his own spirit. He's given us three things. And I'll just touch them and, and, and we'll go from there. He gives us three things that help us to keep from wasting our lives and impoverishing our souls. He's given us his word and he has given us his spirit. And he has given us his church. He's given us his word and his spirit and his church. In Colossians chapter 1, this one didn't make your bulletin, but in Colossians 1 verse 9, Paul is is praying for the, the Colossian church. He's praying for this group of believers that he's never actually met and he's concerned about their spiritual lives. And this is what he says, I've not stopped praying for you since the day I heard about you. And then he tells them exactly what he's praying for them. And here's the very first thing that he prays for Christ's church, we're saying Hickson, is this. He says, I've not ceased to pray for you, asking that he may fill you with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we may live lives worthy of his calling. He's asked you to to be filled with the knowledge of his will. See, he's not ceased praying for you, that's the church that he's given 
that we pray for each other, that we encourage one another daily, right? That we spur one another on toward loving good deeds. We, we sit and we share God's word and we think about what it means to live lives worthy of his calling. That's the church. And so Paul prays for him. That is the first gift. Paul prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, right? That's his word where we find and think biblically so we can choose wisely that we know Christ in his, his will and his way. That we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. And this is where we need the power of God's spirit to bring that truth of his word, the knowledge of his will, home. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. That I would understand the important things and do them. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you, he says. And then you will look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Not choosing poorly, but choosing wisely. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And what is the best use of the time, Paul? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. My friends, our... Our duty before God as believers is to know what the Lord's will is in regards to our marriage, in regards to our family, in regards to our work, in regards to our schooling, in regards to our whatever it is, is to know the Lord's will. What does it mean to be God's person right here, to be his woman, to be his man, to be his child, to be his follower, to be his servant? What does it mean to be to know the Lord's will for for a saint, for a holy one in that moment? And to seek to do it. To choose wisely. To resist the flesh. To surrender ourselves to the life of His Spirit. That we might live lives worthy of the Lord. Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And for me, as I wrote this and I thought about it, and the question is, in all those different places, every little nook and cranny, and you know all the places in your life that come to mind when you hear a sermon like this. And the question in my heart came, am I serving the Lord Christ? Here. Here. In this place. When this demand, in this responsibility, in this duty, in this thing, in this place, am I serving the Lord Christ. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confessed that as often or not we serve ourselves and not our Lord. That as often or not we please ourselves rather than our King. We confess that we tend to give in to the resistance of the flesh, rather than surrendering ourselves to the power of your Spirit. We confess that we do not always do your will, but we do ours. We confess that we do not always do the important things, but we do stuff. Father in heaven, come near and fill us with your Spirit and open our hearts and our minds and recapture us again and bring us that we might surrender ourselves, that we might truly live for Christ. That we might truly live for you at home and at work, at school, and wherever we find ourselves. 
that we would be your servants doing the important things that bring you honor and glory and bring abundance to our lives. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.